Welcome to the Church Historia podcast. We are spending the first season talking about the tapestry of Southern Christianities and some of the threads that lie within. My name is Leslie. And I'm Stephanie. And in our last episode, we talked a little bit about Catholicism in the South, specifically in New Orleans. And in today's episode, we're going to move up to Kentucky and look at Thomas Merton and his Catholicism centered out of the Upper South. Oh, so we're going back to Kentucky again. That's where we began, with Cane Ridge and then the Shakers. Yeah, and I have a, a fun association for myself between Cane Ridge and the Shakers and Thomas Merton, who was a monk and a hermit at Our Lady of Gethsemane in Kentucky because it was the same college church history trip where we visited Cane Ridge, oh, fun. Pleasant Hill, and the Abbey at Gethsemane. And so... While these traditions are really different, they're geographically located fairly close together. And for me, they're all associated with that same really wonderful, wonderful trip. Yeah, I'm really excited because I've heard a lot of really lovely things about the grounds at the Abbey of Gethsemane, which they had to shut down during COVID, actually. I was hoping to go up there, but um, so I'm excited to learn about the tradition. So in the last episode of Church Historia, we talked about Catholicism in the South, how it's actually been here for a long time, and we are continuing that conversation today by going back to Kentucky, actually, where we began. Yes, yes. We're going to look at Thomas Merton today and use him as a jumping-off point for us. Merton is perhaps one of the better-known American Catholic theologians and mystics of the 20th century, but he did a lot of thinking and a lot of writing during the second half of the 20th century and is a good person to look at when we want to explore questions about how people's faith compels them and compels them to do specific work or to not just hold specific ideas, but act upon those ideas. And specifically, we're going to talk a lot about Merton and his ideas on pacifism, but really the the undercurrent here is this idea of religious motivation for activism and political action and action in the public sphere. Hmm. So before we get to Merton as a, as a thinker, for those who don't know him, might be good to trace some of his journey as a person. So he was born in France in 1915. His father was from New Zealand and his mother was American and they were both artists. And so he traveled tremendously and moved around a bunch growing up between France and England and the United States. And I think that exposure to lots of different ideas probably helped shape him as a thinker. But ultimately, he ended up in college at Columbia University in New York City, where he went on to do graduate work in English and English literature. Okay. And so he's very much steeped in a literature and poetic sensibility. Hmm. And so he converted to Catholicism while at Columbia in 1938 and began exploring what he felt was perhaps a calling in his life to become a monk. And he did lay service work in some different neighborhoods in New York and just continued to feel this calling. So on December 10th, 1941, he arrived at the Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky and began his life as as a monk. 
Five years into being a monk, he wrote Seven Story Mountain, which was an autobiography, particularly about his conversion. And it sold extraordinarily well and was, was very popular. And it began for him this very clear interplay between writing and his monastic calling and vocation. And he continues to write more and more, and that's encouraged by his superiors. And then in 1965, he moved into a hermitage and sort of lived as a hermit for the last three years of his life. He died in 1968 on a trip to Asia. Um, he was in Bangkok for a conference on East-West monastic dialogue. And hmm. he was electrocuted. Oh, no. Yes, in the shower. Of all the things. Of all the things, yes. Electrocuted by what? You very easily start running into weird conspiracy theories on the internet. There are conspiracy theories about the death of Thomas Merton? Yes, because he was such a pacifist and such an activist that some would suggest he was silenced. Some would suggest he was in a period of great despair in his life. Oh, my goodness. It may goodness. have been an accident. But yes, ultimately, wow. he was electrocuted that was how... in the shower. Wow. What yep. way to go? You didn't see that coming, did you? I did not. <laughs> of all the things. All the things. For a man who lives as a hermit in a monastic society. Yep. To ultimately meet his demise. Demise in a, shower in, in a shower in Bangkok. Yep. Yep. Nope. That's not what I would have expected. <laughs> One of the things that is very evident in Martin's life through his writing, and even after he moves to the hermitage, he's not disassociated from the world. In fact, mm. he moves to the hermitage and he focuses so much on his writing as a way of engaging with the world, of being separated enough from it to see it, to engage with it, to think about it, to talk about it. So much like when we were talking about the Shakers, about their opinion on marriage and celibacy not being a divorcing from the embodiment of life and from the world, but a way of perhaps seeing it more clearly. I think we see something similar here with mm -hmm. Merton as well about this idea of taking time and stillness and silence and, and writing and thought and consideration as a way of very much engaging with the world. And he yeah. writes tons of letters and he's very prolific. And if folks are interested in Merton, I strongly recommend that they pick up some of his writing because he certainly had a lot to say. So I wanted to use some of what he said as an avenue through which to talk about his views on pacifism and how he understood them and how he understood the relationship between pacifism and his identity as a Christian. This is from a compilation of excerpts from his journal called A Year with Thomas Merton, Daily Meditations from His Journal. And this is the excerpt for August 22nd called Practicing Nonviolence, but he wrote it on August 21st, 1962. He says, Today I realized with urgency the absolute seriousness of my need to study and practice nonviolence. Hitherto I have liked nonviolence as an idea. I have approved it, looking with benignity on it, have praised it even earnestly. But I have not practiced it fully. My thoughts and words retaliate. I condemn and resist adversaries when I think I am unjustly treated. I revile them, even treat them with open but polite contempt to their face. 
it is necessary to realize that I am a monk consecrated to God. And this restricting non-retaliation merely to physical non-retaliation is not enough. On the contrary, it is in some sense a greater evil. At the same time, the energy wasted in contempt, criticism, and resentment is thus diverted from its true function, insistence on truth. Hence, loss of clarity, loss of focus, confusion, and finally, frustration. So that half the time, I don't know what I'm doing or thinking. I need to set myself to the study of nonviolence with thoroughness, the complete and integral practice of it in community life, eventually teaching it to others by word and example. Short of this, the monastic life will remain a mockery in my life. And so for him, nonviolence is not just not acting violent to others, but he really internalizes this as an important part of his interior life. These yeah, well, he puts so many remarks. things under the column of violence Yeah, I wouldn't. Yes, yes. This I isn't mean, just, I'm not going to pick up a sword. This is, I'm going to opt to not use words that are hurtful. Yes, I, I like his point about open but polite contempt right. and, and how often it is, it's easy for us to do that in sarcasm or using things, words that are just a little bit more biting than we need them to be mm-hmm. or that just have a little bit of an edge to them when it's really to sort of appease our own internal frustration. And the fact that he he says, you know, short of practicing nonviolence this deeply in communal life, the monastic life will remain a mockery for him for the rest of his life. That... This is a very serious thing that he is choosing to take on, that this is not a trendy thing. This is this is a deep internal thing for him to work on his entire life, to live an integrous mm-hmm. life of consecration to God. So not, not only does he feel the imperative towards this work of nonviolence in himself, and again, like you said, not just not picking up the sword, but not even picking up the sword internally or in his heart. He also sees a need as a Christian to advocate for peace. And so this is an excerpt he wrote in November 12th, 1961. He said, I must pray more and more for courage as I certainly have neither the courage nor the strength to follow the path that is clearly my duty now. With the fears and rages that possess so many confused people, if I say things that seem to threaten their interests or conflict with obsessions, then I'll surely get it. It is shocking that so many are convinced that the communists are about to invade or destroy America. Christians who think the only remedy is to destroy them first. Who thinks seriously of disarming? For whom is it more than a pious wish beyond the bounds of practicality? I need patience to listen, to learn, to try to understand, and courage to take all the consequences and be ready faithfully. This alone is a full-time job. I dread it, but it must be done. And I don't quite know how. To save my soul by trying to be one of those who spoke and worked for peace, not for madness and destruction. Hmm. So again, you know, we had this sort of interior quote before, and now we have Merton talking about his need to advocate publicly that this is the path that is certainly my duty now. That in the face of the world around him and what he knows and understands to be true, he cannot be silent, but he must speak and take action and try to change things while fully admitting he has no idea how to do it, <laughs> if he can do it, how to sustain him, be sustained through this work. 
Mm. And I really appreciate his honesty here that this is not a, it's not a superhero cape that you put on mm. to do this advocacy work, but that this is a difficult path that requires a lot of courage. But yet he is firmly convicted that to save his soul, he must be one of those who speaks and works for peace. That oh. again, there, there's a, this isn't just a nice to have. This is very much born out of his convictions about God, who God is, how God created the world to be, how God relates to the world, and how we relate to God and to each other. Yeah. Yeah. He talks explicitly about this connection between faith and the world or, or faith and culture, the, the importance and and calling to stand within one's faith and look at the world and then respond in action in the places where those things are not as they should be. Hmm. So this is from November 30th, 1964. The Christian faith enables or should enable a man to stand back from society and its institutions and realize that they all stand under the inscrutable judgment of God and that therefore we can never give an unreserved assent to the policies, the programs, and the organizations of men or to official interpretations of the historical process. To do so is idolatry, the same kind of idolatry that was refused by the early martyrs who would not burn incense to the emperor. The policies of men contain within themselves the judgment and doom of God upon their society. And when the church identifies her policies with theirs, she too is judged with them. For she has in this been unfaithful and is not truly the church. The power of the church, who is not the church if she is rich and powerful, contains the judgment that begins at the house of God. Wow. So it's rather fiery. Yeah. Yeah, he he had a lot a lot of passion and a lot of a lot of things to say, a lot of critique, but always with the hope of bringing things into reconciliation with God and with God's purpose for the world. And you know, there were certainly a number of people who didn't agree with Martin and didn't agree with his mm. takes on nonviolence, on his stances against a variety of wars, especially Vietnam. He was very against the atomic bomb. Yeah. Um, he thought the obsession with communism and the the like in one of the quotes that we read that the the only response to communism was to destroy them first. He found that very problematic, and hmm. people obviously found his opinion problematic. Yeah, but his points about the role of the church in looking and assessing at culture, at policy, at institutions, and asking. Is this bringing forth the kingdom of God? Is hmm. this in alignment with the way that God has called us to be? And when it is not saying that it is not, I think is a very important point and a very important call for all of us. And I think the fact that Merton truly tried to live this uh, is to me helpful in helping me hear that from him, that yeah. this is this is from one who has, who's walked the path, um, not just a sort of platitude of service. And just want to make the note that Merton's not the only pacifist, not the only Christian pacifist writing. You have Dorothy Day and her work in the Catholic workers movement. And that is a very strongly anti-war and pacifist movement. Also a lot of focus on class relations there and how do we support the dignity of workers and, yeah. and what does that mean there? So I find Merton to be very poetic yeah. But he's also not the only one there. Well, and what an interesting, just to tie in 
another Kentucky tradition, the Shaker tradition, that our vocation, you know, he he went to school for writing, you know, that that the spirit can work in our vocation and in the things that we are doing and in our in our hands, yes. you know. And for him to be able to, instead of living a completely hermited life, for him to be able to use all of the things at his disposal is is pretty cool. Absolutely. And I think just to highlight some of the other sort of examples contemporary with his time, during the civil rights movement, a lot of the the thinkers and, and the participants in the civil rights movement were informed by a religious understanding of liberty and liberation and God's heart for justice and equality. And so not just were individuals frequently grounded in that tradition, but also churches as a whole. So one of, I think, the more famous examples is 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, was a meeting place for civil rights activists where a lot of the planning work was done about how the civil rights movement took shape in Birmingham and plannings for marches and protests. And the church's witness led to tremendous backlash and the subsequent bombing in 1963 of that church on a Sunday morning. Mm. And even in the face of that pain and that trauma, the church continued and continues to this day to witness to God's calls for equality and justice. And they're just one among many examples of individuals and also churches and, and church communities who have understood their faith in such a way that it calls them into action and declaration in the public sphere. This comes from Dr. James Hudnut Boimler's book, Strangers and Friends at the Welcome Table, Contemporary Christianities in the American South. And he says, the ways the term hospitality are used and practiced by various Christians and groups in the South today reveal the complexity of its culture and its religious forms. The overarching umbrella that I keep thinking of with everything you're talking about is sanctity of life. You know, there's this... Yes, and like, what does the phrase sanctity of life mean? Everything falls under sanctity of life, doesn't it? Yes, yes. Every argument. Yes, all of it. All of it. That is it. That is the... And, and that's right. his point in this chapter about hospitality, scarcity, and fear in Southern Christianity is that what you understand hospitality to be varies and yeah. how personal and connected it is varies. Mm -hmm. Because generically, I may want everybody to be fed, but only certain people can come to my potluck. Yeah. Or, you know, or invited to coffee hour after church mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. some variation thereof. Mm -hmm. Here's another HB quote for us. A nation, country, or body of people is known by its common practices, beliefs, tastes, modes of expression, and even fights that repeatedly vex it. Christians in the contemporary South possess all the makings of distinct peoplehood. They take the Bible seriously, then fight over what it means. They celebrate hospitality, then divide on whom it, to whom it should be extended. They are clearly the products of their collective past and of their unifying and fractious present. What remains and what makes their present story compelling are the several ways that they continue the deep themes of a long collective identity and the ways that they are breaking new ground in a new century. Hmm.
for each episode, there are these questions that arise. What do I take from this? Yeah. It may be pretty obvious, but I'd love to hear what are the questions that we should be asking ourselves based on the work of Thomas Merton and his tradition. His definition of nonviolence has been something that has stuck with me for a long time. And what would it mean to my life if I took that seriously, especially the particularly the internal parts of that? And if I strove and practiced for nonviolence in in my interior life. I think also Merton and this whole idea of just religiously motivated action in the public sphere, questions are what it does our faith faith call us to. I think it can call different individuals to different things, sort of, again, hearkening back to the Shakers, this idea that the Spirit will come to individuals in their own time, in their own way, that we can be called to advocate and activate for different things. So I don't know that we are all necessarily called to the same types of activism, but I do think that what you believe should ground you and inform how you want to be in the world. And I think part of being in the world is being in community and calling that community to higher ways of being. Mm. And so... I think perhaps one of the questions is, what are we called to? And how does the faith that we have inform how we think about things? How do we think about things? Not just how does our tradition think about things? Not just how we've been told to think about them. Not just what's the standard Christian response to this particular issue. But like Merton talks about, about the church stepping aside and really in a, in a part to really look I, I think that's a, a challenge to all of us to do that and to also look at what the church has told us and mm-hmm. what our tradition has told us mm-hmm. and make sure that we believe the things that we are saying and not just saying them by rote mm-hmm. memory as well. You've been listening to Church Historia. Church Historia is Steph Fulbright, our church historian and team mistress, myself, Leslie Eiler thompson was in-house Iditarod expert and co-host. The music today was played by Andrea Yoey. It's the beautiful O Solaritus Hostia. Thank you for listening. You can find more information about Church Historia and all our episodes at churchhistoria.com. <laughs>